Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Humanly podcast. Daniel Reuters here. And today I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Thomas Dykstra. Dr. Dykstra, you're an entomologist. And, you know, I was thinking, have I ever spoken with an entomologist before? And I think the answer to that question is no. Um, so first and foremost, most people probably don't even know what an entomologist is. Um, so we might even just get into a little bit of a discussion about what entomology is and, and how you got into it. But the way that I, before we get into that, the way that I actually found out about your work is that someone posted a really interesting YouTube video or presentation that you gave back in maybe August of last year. And it was all about why insects don't attack healthy plants. And I've been sort of looking into a similar type of perspective in regards to human health. Um, but I've also got a pretty keen interest in permaculture as well, uh, which has developed over the last couple of years. And I thought, I got to talk to this guy. I got to see what he's all about. So welcome. Thank you for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Daniel. It is a pleasure to be here. Although here is kind of difficult to say. I mean, I'm in the United States, you're in Australia, but uh, we're, we're both here right now. We are. So, uh, yes. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, I can answer your first question. Um, I am an entomologist. That's uh, someone who studies insects. How did I get started in this? Uh, it was uh, given by God, as far as I'm concerned, because I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in insects. So I was interested in insects when I was a little tyke. Uh, uh, but as I usually tell the story, and I'll tell it again, I was also very interested in dinosaurs. Uh, but it didn't take long for me to, to realize that uh, insects were far more interesting because they were alive. And dinosaur hunting would involve uh, digging and uh, looking at dead bones. And so that just didn't strike me as horribly exciting. But uh, if we ever want to talk about stegosaurus or triceratops, I'd be happy to. But for the moment, so I went into entomology. I was uh, very rare in this sense because I was in 10th grade when I made a decision. I mean, I made a decision that I was going to become an entomologist and everybody and their dog told me that you will change your mind. Uh, they told me this in high school. They told me that in college. They continued to tell me that in graduate school. And uh, some of them, I think, might continue to do so, hoping that I'm going to change my mind at some point. But I I have not. And so here I am uh, with uh, three entomology degrees. And so on paper, I'm supposed to know everything that there is to know about insects and nothing about anything else, because this is how we're usually taught is to be so specific in our training uh, that we are unable to discuss anything else. But uh, fortunately, that's not the case. We have been able to uh, uh, look out and take a look at uh, some of these interactions of insects. I've always been interested in physiology, neurobiology, sensory systems, how we think and react as well as the insects as well. And so in the process of trying to determine how the insects do what they do, uh, this is how in part uh, the podcast or the uh, YouTube video that you're referring to uh, came about. I have had the opportunity to uh, give that presentation before, but once it hit YouTube, uh, it uh, re really took off. So in the past, uh, I've had many opportunities to speak, uh, probably no more than a thousand people at a time, but the YouTube was on a completely different scale. And so the number of people that have been able to be reached uh, from this, I hear uh, even people in Australia 
uh, have actually watched the video. So because of that, uh, there are, uh, th that's a great opportunity. I mean, I didn't have to travel uh, per se, uh, even though I have been to Australia, uh, Brisbane and Gold Coast, Sydney uh, before. Uh, but uh, right now, uh, I'm just kind of stuck in the laboratory and I had the opportunity to give this uh, presentation. I was happy to do it. And uh, it was, I think, a little bit of a shock for a lot of people, uh, maybe including yourself, uh, that there's someone out there who is actually looking into this and uh, has what I would call some, some supporting data. Because if you, before this video came out, there was a lot of talk about unhealthy plants. And there's no way that I was the originator uh, of this at all. I wasn't, I just happened to be thrown into it. And it was in the process of realizing uh, that they were right, and that the, uh, these uh, unhealthy plants are being attacked by insects, that I was interested in quantifying it a little bit more. I'm a scientist, so you, know, you can understand that. You just want to put numbers to it. And so the, uh, the BRICS uh, came out. Uh, the BRICS is something, again, that was not my invention. It's been around for a long time, but I was not happy uh, with the way BRICS was being talked about in plants because there wasn't enough information. And I like data, I like lots of data. I would prefer a Microsoft Excel file with thousands of, of uh, cells rather than just a few. And so when I heard about uh, the magic number of 12 BRICS, I was discontent because I didn't think that that was enough. And so I delved into it a little bit more and that it was during the presentation that you saw that I was able to show more detail uh, as to what is going on with the plants and that it's not just about healthy or unhealthy, it's also the degree of health, just as, as it is in human beings. Uh, there, we're not all at the same level of health. Some of us are what many people would call healthy. Other people are very healthy and there are some people who are unhealthy and other people who are very unhealthy. The same thing with plants, same thing with plants. And so these different gradations that I'm briefly mentioning right now can be found in plants. We have a way to measure it. Uh, I use uh, a BRICS refractometer, uh, a leaf BRICS in order to determine that. And in that process, I have been, uh, I have had the pleasure of discovering that insects distribute themselves according to these different levels. And these different levels is then what you, um, uh, what you saw in the YouTube video. So I wanted to go what I would call as beyond 12 bricks. And so that's what I was able to do is to talk about that. And so you can see during the presentation that there are some insects that only found at very low bricks and other insects that are found at a much higher bricks. And then you've got a little, a little bit of everything in between. And that uh, was essentially what I was talking about. And so it parallels in many ways, uh, some of the, the presentations that you have had uh, in regards to terrain theory, uh, because uh, the insect will not attack the plant unless it's unhealthy, and which is a type of terrain theory. It's just being applied to the uh, plant for the first time. It just has to deal with more complete proteins. It has to deal with secondary plant metabolites. It has all the chemistry that you might see in a human being, but is also being manifest in a plant and that the insect then reads. And once the insect reads this, it makes a decision as to whether or not it wants to either attack the plant and eat it or lay its eggs on that plant and therefore let its young uh, eat it as well. And so uh, this is in a nutshell, uh, kind of uh, how it came about. 
And um, I've given a brief introduction of myself. I'm probably going to stop talking and allow you to ask a question if you have one. The reason why I'm so interested to have this discussion with you is because I think, and I was talking to you a little bit about this before we started recording today, is that if we can understand what's going on in nature, so to speak, um, I think we can then sort of begin to understand a little bit better about what's going on inside the human body. Because I think people are of this opinion that somehow humans are separate to nature. And I think we're a part of nature. So if we can see, if we can begin to understand what might be going on between plants and insects, we can probably parallel that to what might be going on in humans. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Uh, There is an absolute parallel between them. So you are obviously much more familiar about the human aspect, but everything that I've just mentioned uh, has an absolute parallel uh, with the uh, plants. So you can have a given plant. It doesn't matter what the species is, but if you've got a 14 bricks plant, it will not be attacked by anything. It won't be attacked by any insect. Uh, They will pass over it. Uh, They will not eat it. And the disease will not take hold of it. It's essentially, you know, healthy at that point. And if you have a plant that is uh, below six bricks, uh, such as five and below, everything will attack it. Uh, Many insects will attack it. There are some insects that won't uh, because they have standards, if you can believe that. (laughs) Some insects have standards about what they eat. uh, Others do not. But by the time you get down to five bricks, the plant is defenseless and it's going to be attacked and uh, and it will be in a lot of trouble. So anything, as I mentioned in the presentation, that is uh, at one to two bricks just will not survive in nature. It just will not. It will be attacked by disease. It will be attacked by insects. It will be attacked by really anything that is out there. It can succumb, for example, to weather. Uh, Weather, you can get a heavy rain and a low bricks plant will break and a high bricks plant will be resilient and will be able to handle, uh, let's say, a severe rain. Uh, Hail is an exception. Hail usually takes out even good plants, uh, but hail is hail. And so uh, that's how that works. But generally speaking, if you have an unhealthy plant, it is susceptible to everything. I think the parallel is quite obvious in humans. We, we can look out and take a look at, at some humans. And as we pass on the street, we may even observe a few and, and look at them and go, wow, they're unhealthy. We may make a judgment call. But looks are only part of it. If we have a way to actually measure it, which we do when it comes to plants. I'm not sure if we have, it's a little harder to, to measure it in humans. There are many different parameters, uh, but for, for the plants, uh, there is a relatively easy way, relatively inexpensive way to do that. And so we can also you know, pass through a field, just like the analogy I used on the street and pass by a plant and look at it and say, wow, that plant does not look healthy. I don't know why, it just doesn't look healthy. And so because of that, you know, it would be good to put a number to it so that we can actually quantify uh, something like that. I did have, uh, it was one of those moments. Uh, I was just a freshman uh, entomologist at Cornell and we went out and we're looking at goldenrod. And this is one of those moments. It didn't hit me at the time, but I had, there was a goldenrod that was attacked by no less than one to 3,000 aphids. It was completely covered. Mm-hmm. And I actually witnessed goldenrod plants right next to it that uh, were not being touched. Mm-hmm. So there are these um, moments, you know, where you kind of think to yourself, wow, I wonder why that is. I never thought about it, 
that seriously. But now that I'm doing what I'm doing, I, I look back upon that, that freshman moment in college and it makes sense to me right now because I see this much more often. And this way I have more of a discerning mind in order to uh, understand what exactly is going on uh, with not just a goldenrod plant, but any other type of plant that's out there as well. For people who haven't seen your video on YouTube, because you do actually go through and um, provide a really nice, simple overview of what BRICS is, um, could you maybe just provide a little bit of an um, insight into BRICS and maybe what the difference is between like zero and four, because you mentioned um, like above 14, most plants are pretty healthy and above sure. below six, they're pretty unhealthy. What does that actually mean? Sure. Okay. Uh, BRICS is a measurement of the dissolved solids. Uh, and I choose to study uh, the leaf because I find that uh, fruit is uh, a little bit more, fluctuates a little bit more. The stem fluctuates a little bit more. The roots can fluctuate a little bit more, but the leaves are going to give you a more consistent reading. So what we do is we crush the leaf and measure the dissolved solids. Now, the dissolved solids are essentially for all practical purposes, a measure of sugar. If you take a look at the number of dissolved solids uh, for a BRICS reading, uh, the vast majority of it is sugar. And so sometimes you will see synonymous terms, uh, dissolved solids, sugar levels, because they are relatively synonymous. There are some, some people who do nitpick and uh, wanna make sure that I'm aware that there are other dissolved solids, but I can also tell you they don't contribute to a very large change uh, in the BRICS readings because it really is the sugar which is driving the BRICS level. So BRICS is a measure of sugar. I think that would be the easiest thing to say for the purpose of this uh, presentation. And so because of that, uh, we measure the sugar levels in the leaf by simply crushing it. We can do that in a plant press. I prefer a plant press. You can do it with a garlic press. It's a little bit harder over time. Uh, that means uh, you will have to uh, um, uh, you're going to get tired, your hand will get tired, and sometimes the garlic press breaks. And so it's not the best thing to use if you're involved in testing, especially if you're doing a lot of testing. But you essentially just crush the leaf and all of the liquid that's inside the leaf, uh, that which is in the phloem tissue, that which is in the xylem tissue, that which is in the apoplastic uh, part of the plant, that which is in the, the epidermis, the mesophyll cells, all of the liquid is crushed and it's uh, uh, brought together, and we can simply get a few drops of that, put it on the BRICS refractometer, and we get a, a reading. And this reading generally will be uh, below 20 BRICS. It usually will not, your leaves almost never get higher than uh, 20 BRICS. So on the scale that I use, I just go up to 20, and I stop right there. In the past, um, the internet is just a wash with 12 and 12 has always been anything above 12 is healthy. Anything below 12 is going to be attacked. And um, I, I, that, as I said before, that just wasn't satisfying. So what, as I mentioned in the presentation, is that anything between one to two bricks will be picked off uh, by almost anything in nature, and it will not survive uh, under natural conditions. You will have to spoon feed it in order to keep it alive. And there are many uh, times when we are able uh, to spoon feed uh, some of this stuff. And I use the example of golf courses because sadly, a lot of golf courses, especially around the greens, are very unhealthy and they need to be taken care of on a daily basis, very low bricks. Um, and so uh, uh, that is uh, what I talk about is the first level. Once you move to the next level, which is about three to seven bricks, this is where most of the crops that are grown 
uh, in our country, and I'm sure Australia too. I really don't think it's any different. Uh, most of the crops are between three to seven bricks, an inadequate level, but certainly higher. They're healthy enough in order to survive and do okay, but they can't get disease, they can succumb to insects, and they generally don't do very well. They also don't taste very well either. Why is that? Well, they don't have as much sugar. Uh, all of us, we have, we have a, a desire to have sugar. All of us have that. We just need it in our plants. We need it in our food and we don't have it in our food. So, mm. you know, when you're eating bad plants and a lot of us are, uh, even if we go down to the organic farmer's market, there's a lot of bad stuff. I prefer to measure it before I eat it because I want to know if it's going to taste good. And if I'm not getting enough sugar in my diet, which I know is absolutely essential for me to survive because uh, glucose is, is running all of the ATP and all of the energy in me, uh, there are times when people feel I need to go get a candy bar because I'm not getting enough sugar in my diet. So from a certain sense, you can't blame them. We all know that we shouldn't be eating candy bars uh, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But on the other hand, we also know that this is a way that our mind is telling us that we're not getting healthy enough food and we need a sugar boost uh, because that sugar will help uh, to keep our bodies uh, healthy. So uh, because the BRICS levels are so low right now, uh, I think the candy market is, is certainly doing very well, uh, taking advantage of that particular fact. And uh, that's usually what most of us are eating. Once you move to the next level, which I uh, determined to be about eight to 12 bricks, at that point, the plants start to develop resistance. They will taste a lot better, a lot. You'll be able to notice the difference uh, very strongly. Uh, secondary plant metabolites start to shoot up. There's a lot of resistance among the plants. The insects don't want to eat it anymore. They will fall off the plant or they will stop eating at that point. Uh, food starts to taste good, especially when you get above 10 bricks. It's really starting to taste pretty good. By the time you get to 12, that's the teeter-tottering point, at which point almost nothing is going to get it. But uh, I have noticed uh, grasshoppers and some of the other orthopterous insects going after relatively high bricks plants, going after a lot of the, some of the similar foods that you and I would uh, like to have. And these were the problems back when the United States began. We were having most of the trouble with locusts. That, that was the big problem. We were raising plants that were relatively high bricks, but when they became slightly weakened, uh, the locusts would come in, they would choose one farmer's field over another, they were being selective. And now here we are in 2022 and the locusts are nowhere near as serious a problem. They're still there, there's still grasshoppers out there, uh, but they're just not as bad as they, uh, as they used to be. Now we have other insects, and that's why I've got a list of the different insects as you go down, down, down from one bricks level to the next. Other insects just stop eating, and then other insects come in and start eating that extremely unhealthy food because they are nature's garbage collectors. That's their job, is to clean out plants that we should not be eating. So if there's an insect eating an apple, I put it down uh, because I realize it's not, it's not healthy enough uh, for me to eat. And so the same thing goes with plants. Uh, if they're eating plants out there, I mean, it's a tough thing to say to a farmer whose uh, subsistence is to, to raise crops, but you know, that's, just, that's just telling me that the plants are not suitable for human consumption. And so we need to, uh, to raise the BRICS levels in order to get them healthier. And at that point, they will become more resistant. So 8 to 12 is when things really start to pick up. Once you're above 12, and I usually tell people, 
you want to make sure if you can is to make sure, uh, sure that you're at 14 bricks or above because it's a safe zone. Why is it the safe zone? Because there are always fluctuations in bricks. And it's, I have noticed it's very common for bricks levels to fluctuate by two without any, any, any issues. I mean, sometimes during the day, uh, from one day to the next, from one week to the next. And so by putting a, uh, a goal of 14 bricks, uh, you can protect yourself from being attacked because if it falls to 12 bricks, it's not a big deal. And so there are plants out there uh, and they're usually in pretty good uh, shape and they do, uh, they do well. Just to kind of give you an idea, because for some people who may be, may be even doubting what I'm saying right now, I have tested a lot of the crops that are out there, and I mentioned they're between three to seven bricks. Well, I'm here in the laboratory. I decided to go out and test a random tree that no one has done anything to at all. And I tested it and brought it back to the laboratory, got some leaves, and it came in at 15.5. So this gives you an idea that nature uh, is... Uh, has taken care of itself. Uh, there is a lot of healthy food to be had out there. When a plant is growing and it's growing well, it's telling you that uh, it's relatively healthy and it's going to grow sometimes into a big tree, maybe an oak tree. We've got plenty of oaks here, if not into another plant. And uh, that's how nature works. That's so awesome. that was a quick summary on, uh, on the BRICS levels for you. No, that's a, a great explanation. And what determines the BRICS of a plant? Is it like one day a plant just growing? It's like, you know what? I'm just going to send my bricks down to nothing. Um, or are there inputs that result in the bricks level dropping? Are we talking about sunlight, nutrient levels, water levels, soil pH? Like, do you know what constitute or, or what inputs create a higher bricks or a lower bricks? Yeah. Um, essentially, uh, if you sit back and do nothing, uh, a plant will kind of let you know and will do what it needs to. But you're right. It's the fact that it needs sun uh, because if you don't have enough uh, sunshine, uh, the plants will suffer. They will not photosynthesize as well as they should. And so uh, they're going to need a fair amount of sunshine. Some like citrus here in Florida needs a lot of sunshine. You guys in Australia, you have a massive amount of sun and a lot of your plants do well uh, under high sun conditions. Other plants, not, not so much. Uh, but we have uh, a lot of these variations that are out there. And so when a plant is kind of left to do on its own, uh, it usually does pretty well. However, when we start throwing stuff at the plant and compromising its health, at that point, there's really not much the plant can do. So the big thing uh, is pesticides, because it doesn't matter whether you're using insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, nematicides. All of these sides are killing microbes in the soil. These microbes are feeding micronutrients to the plant. When the plant cannot get these micronutrients, it's not healthy. And because it's not healthy, it will not be able to defend itself. And so we are doing a really good job of compromising the plants that we are raising for human consumption. That just happens to be one of the methods uh, that we are doing that is really causing a lot of difficulty because these Pesticides are, uh, are great chelators. Um, do I need to tell your audience what chelators are? Uh, yes, correct? it might be. Some people okay. may not know. Okay. I, I know you've got a, more of a medical-oriented audience, but a chelator is essentially it's able to grab a, micro, a micronutrient like uh, iron, uh, manganese, uh, um, uh, copper. Any of these micronutrients can be chelated or grabbed onto. They can be pulled out. And I know there's chelation therapy that's used for humans that can actually pull out a lot of the heavy metals, and they do a good job of that. If these heavy metals do not get into the plant, I mean, not the heavy metals, but a lot of the metals, the plant will not be able to grow the way that it should. 
And so the BRICS level will go down. If you don't have these, if you don't have the copper, if you don't have the iron, it will not be used as a, as a cofactor on an enzyme. And the enzyme will not be able to make a healthy protein. If the plant is not healthy and it will not be able to make it, instead of it being a solid protein, it's now broken into two pieces, three pieces, four pieces. A broken protein is digestible to an insect. A full protein cannot be digested by an insect. And this is the fundamental difference between vertebrates and invertebrates. Invertebrates are great garbage collectors. We don't do well at eating garbage. We are not healthy when we eat garbage. But when we eat healthy food, we're very, very healthy and we do very well for ourselves. And so do many other vertebrates like, uh, you know, deer, for example, you know, um, there are, you know, many deer attack our plants too, but deer will also only go after the healthy plants. If you give them a choice, they will, they will choose the good stuff. If you give insects a choice, they will choose the bad stuff. But, you know, deer and, and other animals, they will uh, usually choose the healthier food. That's what they like to eat, just like uh, you and I. I mean, I'm sure you've had good tasting food before. And sometimes you think, wow, I've never had whatever it may be, a spinach leaf that tasted this good, you know, because there's a big difference between spinach leaves that taste bad and taste good. And it's, you think it's just a leaf, but sometimes the difference is, is kind of profound. And uh, so uh, just knowing that that is out there, the insects are also making that decision on a daily basis uh, because they're trying to survive. They have a very simple uh, digestive system. They can only eat that which is partially digested or not fully formed. And that's their job in order to do so. And these plants, when they are compromised, will not photosynthesize properly. If they're not photosynthesizing, they will not produce sugar. Sugar is the main product of photosynthesis. If you've been, you know, taken a, a, a biology course, you should know that. For those of you who haven't, that is the end product of photosynthesis. And the more photosynthesis occurs, the more sugar is in the plant. So in essence, what we're doing with the BRICS levels is we're measuring the level of photosynthesis. That's in essence what we're doing. If there's a lot of photosynthesis going on, there will be a higher BRICS. And if there's not a lot of photosynthesis, almost always because it's being compromised in some way, uh, then it will be low bricks and it will not taste good. It will get attacked by disease. It will get attacked by insects. And then we start to have problems uh, from, these, uh, from these particular plants. So they need uh, sunshine. Um, they, um, uh, there's, there's a bioelectromagnetic component, which uh, I mean, they have to absorb uh, not just um, visible radiation, but they need infrared and ultraviolet radiation too. We have lots of proteins and amino acids that selectively absorb in these frequencies. All of these frequencies are, are important for a plant to be exposed to. And if you don't have that, you're going to be in trouble. If you don't have enough water, you guys have a lot of trouble in Australia with water. That's usually a, a major problem. And that usually limits your microbial content in the soil mm. because the microbes need water in order to swim around. And so if you're having low bricks plants in Australia, one of the limiting factors will be water uh, because there's nothing for them to swim around in. So you, you will have to irrigate uh, because it's just hard to grow plants in a very dry environment, even cacti. Uh, don't do well in a dry environment. That's why they take in water and store it for 11 months. I mean, they're really good at it, but they need water too. Every plant needs water. So mm -hmm. that just happens to be their way of getting around it. But all plants need that. And so, yeah, you need the water, you need uh, the sun, we need all the nutrients. And if you have everything 
uh, that you need, the plant will put itself together in exactly the right way. Uh, an analogy that I'm going to use is a skyscraper, Daniel. Uh, note, let's just say you have 100 men putting together a skyscraper. Uh, and let's just say they're 200 pounds each. So measure the weight of a skyscraper and then measure the weight of those 100 men. It's like night and day. I mean, it's just a huge difference. Therefore, someone may wrongly conclude that those men are not important, <laughs> but they're the ones putting the skyscraper together. Yeah. But you, you look at the weight. I mean, you do an, a tissue analysis and you said there's not even any, 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 any human tissue in the building. There's nothing in there. And, and yet they're absolutely important. These are the cofactors. These are the micronutrients. These are the ones that are putting everything together. And it's, uh, it's all that, that carbon and that nitrogen and the oxygen that's being put together by these micronutrients. And so without these micronutrients, nothing gets put together. The skyscraper uh, is unstable at that point. And uh, that's the analogy that I use because it's it's such a huge disparity between them, but it hits home how important uh, it is in order to be able to put things together properly, because that's what plants will do if they're left to their own devices. And as you were talking, I'm sort of thinking, you know, why are the insects going after it? I mean, there's probably a couple of reasons. Um, so the things that go through my mind are that they're not able to obviously produce chemicals that repel insects. But another thing, and I might be completely off track here and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it possible that the healthy plant, mother nature, uh, sorry, the unhealthy plant, uh, mother nature wants to return that plant back to the soil because it hasn't got what it needs to flourish. So it's like, well, we're going to have to return that plant back to the soil and those nutrients can go back into the soil for the other plants that do have what they need to stay healthy. Um, what do you think's going on with all of that? I, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, I'm not even sure if I'd add anything to what you just said. That was, right. that was just beautiful. Uh, so that's exactly it. All, all of these plants that are unhealthy will be returned to the soil. They will break down their constituent, uh, constituent nutrients will then be used by some other, uh, some other plant, maybe a tree, maybe a shrub, maybe a flower. I don't, I don't know but it'll be returned to the soil and then it'll start over again. So everything wants to be healthy. Humans want to be healthy uh, and we, they will go uh, to extremes in order to, pre to prevent disease from overtaking it. The plants will do the same thing. So it's only when you compromise it uh, mm -hmm. that it's going to be in trouble. So yeah, if I'm running away from a bear, uh, hopefully, you know, I'm fast enough in order to get away. But if you, you know, take out a gun and shoot me in the foot, I'm going to have difficulty running away from that bear now. So you've now compromised my ability to run away from a bear. And so when we do this, we don't realize that we're hurting our chances of, of remaining healthy or in this case, remaining alive. And so because of that, you know, we want uh, to remain in a state of health. That's what we want to do. But there are cases, and, and this happens in nature too. Don't get me wrong and think that everything in nature is super healthy. There are a lot of things that are, are sometimes not healthy. They're just picked off. They're just picked off by disease. They're picked off by insects. You can go into the tropical rainforest, a very healthy ecosystem, and find insects eating the plants. Hmm. But you will not find them completely decimating the tropical rainforest. They never do that. And uh, I, in the presentation, I, I mentioned uh, Kauai uh, because uh, I've been to Kauai before. I mean, it's just a beautiful 
uh, island. Uh, it's got some of the most lush vegetation that's out there, and there's plenty of insects. I, I saw them. I witnessed them. Uh, I looked at them. Uh, there, there's a lot of them that are there, but they're not eating the vegetation to the point where Kauai uh, loses all of its vegetation and becomes some kind of desert. So they're being selective in what they're doing. Uh, they're doing it in Kauai. They're doing it in the United States. They're doing it in Australia. They've got certain standards about what they want to eat, and they will find uh, what they can eat. And if they cannot find what they're going to eat, they will, uh, they will die. Uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the presentation, but I'll mention the, uh, um, uh, there's a tree uh, out there. It is a uh, pecan tree, and the pecan tree is often attacked by the fall webworm. And I have witnessed fall webworm attacking. It usually makes a nice uh, um, web around the, uh, the tip, and it will, they will start to eat the leaves and completely clean it out and then move on to another part of the pecan tree. Well, I've actually witnessed uh, trees that apparently were not healthy enough because the eggs were laid. The insects started to feed and then they stopped. And I have witnessed fall webworm collecting on the end of a tree limb inches away from a leaf and they're doing nothing. They're not eating, they're not making a web, they're just sitting there and they will sit there for days. And then one by one, as they starve to death, they will fall off the plant. Well, and that will be the end of it. They will starve to death. Even though the pecan, food is right there for them. Inches. Inches. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're in Australia. Probably don't deal in inches. Okay. Just centimeters away uh, from them are, are healthy leaves. But, but the problem is they're too healthy. They're too healthy. So they were eating and then they had to stop eating because they can't digest it. Something that's not digestible, you don't want to put into your body. You don't eat bark from a tree. You don't eat mostly. Uh, I realize there are some benefits, but, uh, uh, but we don't eat tires. Uh, we're not eating rubber. We're not putting that because it doesn't taste good. It's not going to help our, our digestive system. We don't do that sort of thing. And so the same thing goes with the uh, insects. Uh, the insects will make a choice about what they're going to eat and what they're not going to eat. And uh, this is where you know, our discussion is going right now. I just think about that point you made about insecticides because we've thought that the insects are the cause of the problem, but they're not. It's the environment and the lack of these inputs that determine whether or not the, the plant is healthy. How have we gotten this so wrong to the point that we think the insect is the problem and now we've got to go and spray our food, which is actually causing more of a problem? I mean, it's just, it just seems so uh, counterintuitive to me. Uh, I think we got in this direction because we were led in this direction and we allowed ourselves to go in this direction. Right. So uh, you can call us lemurs or what you want to do, but we've had uh, some scientists and companies and some of these scientists are, are paid by the same companies in order to espouse uh, these uh, pesticides uh, that they need to be sprayed because insects are competing with us. In my experience, they're not. Anytime I know that there's an insect out there eating something, it's not competing with me. Uh, as I said, the possible exception are those orthopterous insects, the grasshoppers, the crickets, longhorn grasshoppers, the tetagoneids. These, these guys will do a pretty good job of eating relatively healthy stuff that I might you know, eat myself. But for the most part, insects are not eating what I'm eating. They're not competing with us. Mm -hmm. And so how did this mentality begin? I think it started slowly because you just don't walk up to someone and convince them of this, 
right from the get-go. It just is unnatural. So all of this kind of started uh, en masse in the 40s, because that's when pesticides really started. And we realized, wow, you know, we can kill insects and therefore we can raise our plants. And this seemed like a good thing. And everyone saw that it was good. And so because they saw that it was good without perceiving that it was bad, uh, it took off and things started to go. So when the insects came in, you can go out there and you can spray an insecticide, Daniel. And so you do, and you take care of the insect. But in the process, you kill a lot of the microbes, you weaken the plant, and then a fungus takes over. And the same company will approach you and go, you have a fungus problem. He said, yeah, the insecticide worked great though. But he said, you know, that's great because we have a fungicide for you. And you're like, I'll take it. And so they sell the fungicide and the fungicide takes care of the fungus. And uh, now you've got a, a severely compromised plant. The soil is now becoming compromised. And the first thing that happens with compromised soil is weeds come in because they want to correct the problem. So specific weeds will come in correcting the problem. And then you're like, wow, man, I've got a weed problem right now. And that same representative will come to you. I've got an herbicide for you. And you're like, I'll take it. So you take that herbicide, uh, you spread it around. And there are a lot of uh, individuals out there who are spraying all three. And in some cases, all four, because in Florida, we have nematicides used uh, quite frequently, more so than the rest of the country. I don't know how prevalent uh, they are in Australia, but uh, they're, when they're sprayed, especially all three or all four of them, you're doing a fantastic job of cleaning out the microbes. And when you do that, Things are chelated. Uh, they're no longer available. The microbes are being killed by this stuff. The plants are throwing their roots into sterile soil. They've got nobody in the soil helping them. They're compromised. They're unhealthy. They taste bad. They're susceptible to disease. They're susceptible to insects. And uh, yes, we, we do have to break that cycle. We absolutely have to break that cycle. And I guess insects... Are... For the most part, we're not. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I am so sorry, <laughs> Daniel. You are the host. Go get them. I also think that it's like an obvious target to blame, right? You look at a plant, it's being eaten by an insect and you go, oh, the insect is a problem. I can visually see it. And it's logically for a human, it's like, oh, well, that makes sense. It's the insect. But because we can't see finer details we can't see the nutrients in the soil we can't see the ph we can't appreciate how little or how much sun it's getting that doesn't enter our paradigm or our reality and it's sort of i see that the same way with human beings it's like when we get sick and we go oh well let's go and have a look oh look at this bug here that must be the problem that must be the problem it's obvious yeah. because we can visually see it but we can't see the other things that aren't visually apparent does that sort of ring true for you as well that absolutely rings true. And as a matter of fact, let me move on to the next uh, step beyond that. Please. And that is the food that we eat. Because when you start to perceive the food that you eat and you realize that some food tastes better than others, and any food that tastes better than others is almost always going to be healthier for you. It's going to be higher bricks because bad food just doesn't taste good. Low bricks food just doesn't taste good. It tastes like cardboard. So oftentimes, if you're eating a vegetable and it tastes like cardboard, I'm going to tell you that it's going to be five bricks or below. And I'm probably going to be right because you can test the fruit itself. And so that's why, even though you said you can't see it, but you can taste. Mm. So, for example, we've got oranges right now. Uh, we, have, we have oranges in, uh, in Florida. It's one of our big industries right now. I prefer to have oranges 
that are 18 and above, 18 bricks and above, the actual orange, not the actual leaf, which is usually going to be a little bit lower. I have personally tasted uh, 21.7 bricks uh, orange. Tastes good. I like it. I would like more of that. But a lot of the oranges that are going um, to make orange juice, uh, we're usually averaging 13 bricks. So therefore, orange juice, which I love, is not going to taste as good. And I've had the opportunity to taste some pretty bad orange juice. And just recently, uh, just within the past uh, year or two, they have now lowered the standard for bricks levels on oranges when they're coming in from the field to, I think the last I checked, it was about 10.5. They're allowing 10.5 bricks oranges, not the leaf bricks now, but the oranges themselves. And they test the oranges on a regular basis. They are paid, the farmers are paid on how high their bricks is. They get higher bricks, they get more money. So an 18 bricks is gonna be huge for them. Uh, 11.2 bricks is not gonna net them a lot of money. Uh, So that's partially how they are paid. And so because we've got this relatively unhealthy orange juice being put in, sometimes in the morning when I have my orange juice, it doesn't taste that good. And I know that I'm dealing with a lower bricks product than I would normally uh, do so. So that goes back to what you said is how do we know? We can't see it. Well, actually, you can see some things. You can respond to the foods that you taste and your taste buds are very good. They will let you know, as I said before, they can even lead you in the wrong direction. And that is if you're not getting enough sugar in your diet, which keeps you alive, you don't need that much, but you need some. And if you are starved for sugar, if you need that energy, your body will go after mostly water-soluble foods uh, because the sugar is going to be found in there. If you are short in fats, you're going to go after fat-soluble foods, and that's what your body will will tell you you need to eat. And so we can be fooled because sometimes we go get a candy bar, uh, as I mentioned earlier on. And that's, be, that's, that's a sign that we are short sugar, we are weak. And uh, because of that, we, we, we made the wrong choice. Not to say that candy bars are bad. I've had a few myself, especially, you know, when, <clears throat> I mean, we've all had candy bars. I'm not, not going to, I'm not going to put them out of business or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> Uh, the point that I'm trying to make right now is that if you listen to your body, it will tell you what you need. Uh, overweight people, generally speaking, are starving to death, generally speaking. And that's what I've kind of noticed from the analogy that I've seen is that uh, they are starving. They need uh, more sugar and they need more fats. Why? Because the body knows is that if it gets high sugar foods, it's going to get the water soluble vitamins that are short in the body. If it's going to get that fatty food, it's going to get fat-soluble vitamins that are short in the body. And so these desires to have sugary food or fat food, which are the basic uh, way that humans work. Why am I talking about humans right now? I told you I wasn't going to do this. Then this is a, a reason why a human will choose whether he needs sugar, whether he needs fat, because these are the things that our taste buds are tuned to, not because we need the sugar or the fat, but because that's where our water-soluble vitamins or our fat-soluble vitamins are found. So getting back to insects, they're going to be doing the same thing. They're going to be tasting food, the sap of uh, leaves, uh, the epidermal cells. They're going to be tasting it to see whether or not this is adequate for their consumption. And they have very specific things that they are going to be going after. They're not going to be going after the same things that we do, but they're looking for very specific things. So 
Some insects are looking for a high nitrogen source because they have high fecundity. Other insects are going to be looking for different nutrients for different reasons. And we find that many insects attack some plants quite readily and never touch anything else. There are some insects that attack a whole bunch of plants, uh, but not as well as some of the specialists. And so you can see that all of the insects have their own their own specialization as to what type of food they like to eat. And if you put them, if you have a leaf eater, it is very common that you could take an insect and put it on a leaf and it will starve to death because it's not the right leaf and it will not eat, let's say, the leaf that you're presenting it with. It will only go after a particular species and sometimes a particular genus, in other cases, a particular family of plants, and in some cases, a, a limited number of families of plants that it will go after. And there are reasons for this. So they have to taste their food just as we do. Uh, I think personally that they pay attention to tasting their food a little bit better than we do. We are a little indiscriminate about what we're putting in, especially when we're in a hurry and we just throw something in order to fill our stomachs when we're not really paying attention uh, to that which is healthy and unhealthy. But the insects are paying attention to this quite readily. And they have told us what they like and what they don't. And I have decided to um, uh, give the presentation in order to hopefully enlighten people who haven't thought about insects in this light before. Is your hypothesis, I guess it's probably what you would call it. Um, That'll be fine. Is this a widely held perspective in the field of entomology or are you prov um, posing a relatively novel idea? I am... Uh, I wouldn't call it novel because that would mean that I kind of started it. So, right. okay. Uh, but yeah, there, there is a, there is a novelty to it. It's been known for decades and I'm just a messenger who was right. now making, as far as I'm concerned, the sufficient observations to see that this effect is real and that it is measurable. And so measurable has to do with science science. So this is how we work. We just need to be able to measure things uh, with as many significant digits as possible, because that's how we scientists work even if it's unnecessary to have 15 significant digits. But the fact remains is that is what um, is most, I think, helpful. So we can actually put a number uh, to it. So most entomologists do not share this opinion. Um, and because of that, uh, you might say it's a lonely world until, uh, my goodness, I go to some conferences. There are some conferences I can go to uh, where it seems like 90% of the people agree with me and other conferences that I can go to where it's in the single digits of the, of the percentage of people who agree with me. So uh, there are some individuals out there who do get it, some who do not. Uh, I try to engage, especially in scientists uh, who wish to engage so that we can discuss the science behind it. And for the most part, uh, they usually walk away. Interesting. And how do you think we change that uh, perspective? Because I think it's really important for a number of reasons. And one of those is that if we continue to blame an insect as the cause of the problem here, and we don't under address the real underlying cause, we're going to continue to produce these really harmful pesticides and fungicides and herbicides. And we're going to destroy our environment. We're going to continue to destroy it ad infinitum, right? We're going to end up in a really bad situation here because we're going after mother nature's cleanup crew it's just doing its job really um, yes like how do you think we get over this I, I i can see where we're going with these um pesticides and herbicides like they're even now getting into the human body 
I think they're found in most organisms in, in the face of the planet and they're really, really harmful. Um, so this is something that I think is a big problem and we really need to deal with. So what do you think is a solution and how do we change this perspective? Um, I don't think it's easy to do uh, because this is something that we have known about for decades, mm-hmm. but uh, there is a certain beauty in, uh, in YouTube, for example, the, the beauty of this is to be able to reach uh, more people than I've ever reached before. So I've been invited to a number of conferences. I've had a chance to speak, uh, you know, from, you know, 50 people up to a thousand people at a time, but that's really small potatoes when it comes to, to YouTube and some of these videos and these videos, when they get out there, uh, they get viewed by a lot of people. And so when you talk about how do you change someone, uh, I would have to say, wow, you know, I, I, I kind of wish I thought about this first, but be- before this, I really didn't uh, have as much information as I do now. So yes, I would have liked to have done something 10 to 20 years ago, but I, I just didn't had, hadn't collected enough information and uh, therefore it probably wouldn't have been as effective. But now that we have these dissemination devices, we have computers, we have abilities to get these videos out, uh, whether it be talking about uh, the terrain theory or whether it be talking about uh, insects attacking plants, there are ways to get it out. And when people hear the truth, they respond to it. So anything that doesn't look interesting usually does not do well and it does not go, let's call it viral. And so because of this, people, they, they look at it. They say, this, this guy doesn't make any sense. I got to move on. And they do. On the other hand, when uh, truth resonates with people, and I'm trying to be not only as truthful as possible, but also scientific, because people expect that. They say, well, well, he's got a PhD, so we're going to need some science here. I just can't sit there and, and you know, talk about these numbers without having some background in that, in that area. And so... Once you uh, do so and you're able to put some numbers to it uh, and then you are able to disseminate it much better, as you said, this is just last year. And since last year, since that video has come out, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that my life has changed, uh, but it, it has changed somewhat uh, since then. There has been a lot more attention. I've had uh, been contacted by people all over the world, number of universities all over the world, uh, Africa, Australia, Europe who have been uh, uh, talking. And so I realized, wow, this is in, in part a way to do so. Uh, and so if this is the way uh, that uh, the way things are supposed to be right now, then uh, I, will, I will ride that wave and, and do what I'm supposed to do, especially you know, before I get too old and uh, am no longer able to do this anymore. Yeah, it's, it's amazing what you're doing. And I think you just need to keep speaking how you see this um arena because i think as you said when you hear it it resonates and like i saw this video on like oh why why insects don't attack healthy plants i was like oh that's interesting i I wonder what this guy is talking about and i listened and i was just like yeah it, it just makes complete sense and then you also backed up your reasoning why you justified it and for me that was enough and i was like okay i need to uh speak to you to find out more how do you find, like, do you speak to many farmers? Are they receptive to what you're telling them or do they sort of want to stay in that paradigm of using these chemical sprays and going after the insects, so to speak? Uh, I, I talk to farmers all the time and okay. I enjoy talking to farmers. Uh, as a matter of fact, I even prefer uh, to talk to farmers. I have more difficulty with my colleagues, uh, fellow, fellow PhDs, 
uh, than I do with farmers. But when I talk to farmers, they get it, especially when I can get up there and talk to them about what's going on in their field. I just gave a presentation, uh, I think it was just maybe three months ago. I'm trying to remember what it was. And a farmer came up to me and he, his mouth was agape. And I looked at him and, you know, hi. Uh, and he says, wow, you just described my entire farm operation in one hour. That was awesome. I really loved that presentation. And, and it wasn't the BRICS presentation that I'm even talking about. It was a completely different presentation uh, that I had uh, given. Uh, and so when it resonates, as we talked about before, they get it. So farmers, they understand. They're looking at their crops. They, under, they know what their crops are doing. And so you've got to talk to them. You've got to talk to them about their crops, about their soil. You got to talk to them about the things that are important to them. The things that are important to PhDs are very different than that. Um, they are very into uh, numbers, tables, statistics, uh, complex information. This is what makes them go. I actually am partly guilty of that myself. Uh, I do, uh, I'm analyzing spreadsheets right now uh, of hundreds of thousands of cells uh, on each tab. And I think I've got 24 tabs on each one. So I get that. I get the data, the data, there's a data high and I get that. And I do have to do statistics and play that game. But when you're talking to farmers, you have to talk to them on what they're familiar with and you have to talk crops. You have to understand, uh, what they're doing. I've, I've, I've explained to them. Uh, I said, what you're probably getting from the university is that they're telling you to switch between three different pesticides. So that resistance is staved off. Just that one comment right there, I have got, I've had a number of people shaking their head. Other people came up to me and said, yeah, that's exactly what the university is telling me right now. I said, because that's what they're kind of doing from a distance. But I said, look at it this way. You're being asked to spray three different families of insecticides, okay? Maybe an organophosphate, a carbamate, a neonicotinoid. Of those three, each one is killing microbes a very specific group of microbes. So the neonics are going to be killing some microbes. Then you bring in organophosphate and you kill other microbes. And then you bring in uh, carbamate and you're killing other microbes. And then you, you go back and forth. So you are effectively cleaning out all of the microbes in your soil. It would be better in a sense just to use one of them because at least you completely wipe out several species of microbes rather than all of them. Uh, and what you're doing. And so when you talk to them on, on that light and they realize, okay, resistance isn't everything because right now we are being told, especially on the entomology conferences, that resistance is the biggest problem in agriculture today. Insect resistance to the pesticides. Admittedly, it is a huge problem uh, because the ability of the insects to get resistant using the P450s, using the glutathionase transferases, using the esterases in order to break down these chemicals. It is, they're good. They're really good at doing this right now. So I get it, but that's not the problem because we shouldn't be trying to kill the insects per se. I understand that, that they become a problem, then they become a bigger problem, they become a bigger problem. And I'll be able to show you on a BRICS refractometer how the BRICS is going down and down and down and down. And I've had a chance to do that uh, with the uh, citrus presentation. Um, so right after the BRICS presentation, you know, I mentioned uh, that I was going to be doing a follow-up to this, talking about citrus insects. And so that citrus presentation uh, was very specific about a single crop and then talking about how uh, the health of the citrus tree has declined over the past uh, 100 years 
and why we have selected for the insects that we're doing. And so even though that is dealing with citrus, it applies to every crop on the planet, every single crop on the planet. And so it resonates well because people understand it. It resonates with citrus farmers because they see these insects. But anyone who's looking at apples or avocados or any other type of tree can also see the analogy. And even if you're looking at a crop that you can raise in 60 to 90 days, such as corn, you also understand that too. There are different stages and uh, some corn is simply not attacked. Uh, this is common sense when you think about it, because if corn was attacked 100% of the time, what farmer would plant corn? Exactly. He, he would put the corn in, 100% of it would be picked off by insects, and you've done nothing. You've done absolutely nothing. But they, they, they do that because a lot of the corn does survive. Some of the corn does is susceptible and will uh, uh, be uh, susceptible to disease or insects, but a lot of it makes it. And uh, the farmer has a crop to sell. He makes money. He's able to feed his family. All of this is great. All of this is considered to be a good thing. So I like helping farmers. I like to talk to farmers. I, I enjoy going to conferences or doing field mm -hmm. days or doing any type of uh, thing of that sort where I get a chance to talk to the farmer directly so that it's not filtered through uh, a scientific article or something like that. Because I've talked to farmers before. And I say, you know, give me a show of hands. How many of you are reading scientific articles? And they're all, not only they keep their hands down, but they all start laughing, you know, or chuckles. They're like, yeah, we, we don't do that. So I was like, so all this information is being sent out there and you're not reading it. And mm -hmm. so that's just the way it is right now. So I choose to go to the farmers directly and uh, I can talk to a uh, hundred to a thousand of them quite easily uh, when I go speak. And I want to make sure that what I say resonates with them. So if I'm going to talk to uh, corn producers, I want to make sure that I'm specific to corn so they understand what I'm saying. Cotton producers, I want to make sure they understand. Citrus producers, I want to make sure they understand. I want to make sure that I'm talking their language rather than me getting up there and talking about some crazy lofty idea that is backed up by figures and regression analysis and statistical analyses and, and uh, tables that are too complex to be memorized uh, just so that I can impress you with how smart I am and how dumb you are, because this is sometimes the philosophy and uh, farmers are looked down upon. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I've got other stories to mention in regards to that too, but I've rebelled against it quite heavily and will seek uh, to help out a farmer, uh, especially if, I, if I'm asked to speak. Uh, I really do enjoy getting that opportunity to do so. I'd like to just touch a little bit on the whole insecticide resistance or pesticide resistance um so i'll would you mind if i sort of just for a moment explain how i see it and you can maybe put me on the right track i'm probably going to agree with you 100 percent. go ahead <laughs> well i don't know so i can only come up with with ideas and I, I sort of think about things as you're speaking i just find this so fascinating um so we're equating the resistance to the insects no longer being affected by the insecticide. It's, it's building up this resistance, right? Or is it possible that the quality of the soil and, their, and, and the rest of the environment is affecting the quality of the plant so much that Mother Nature's like, 
There's no viability here. We've got to return this stuff back to the, back to the soil. It's, it's just not going to survive. So the, the plants may be sending out some signal saying, hey, we're compromised. There's no point in us growing. Come and get us. And it overrides this insecticide activity. Is that, Would there maybe be some sort of element of truth to that? Or am I completely off the mark here? I think you're talking about two different things. You're talking about an unhealthy plant attracting an insect. And that doesn't necessarily involve an insecticide per se. That's simply an unhealthy plant that is advertising itself, which is saying, come eat me. And so the insects will come in and it will eat it and they will take the plant and destroy it and eat it all the way down uh, to the root system. And uh, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. That, that is how things are supposed to work. That was the way things were ordained to work. And that's the way we, we view life on earth as happening right now. So the, uh, the, the, uh, the resistance, though, is that is really kind of important because the insects are usually eating pretty healthy food, as I've kind of mentioned to during this uh, time we're talking. And because of that, they're usually exposed to a lot of bad stuff. So it's really not that surprising that they're pretty good at breaking down chemicals. Mm. So they've got really prodigious abilities to do so. And because of that, it, it, I mean, it kills a lot of them, especially when a new insecticide comes out, they're really good. The kill rate is very, very high. And then usually uh, by, the, by the time 10 years comes around, it, it's not doing anything anymore. It's like water at them. But the resistance will come in usually within a year, sometimes in two or three years, and we start to see resistance to a particular chemical. And their ability to do so is all based upon their uh, ability to break it down. So all of these enzymes that are out there, I briefly mentioned uh, the P450s, the glutathione transferases, and the esterases, all three of those main detoxification enzymes are found in humans. So I'm breaking my rule again and now switching to humans. Sorry about that. (laughs) So because they're they're found in insects, they're found in humans, all of us are detoxifying things on a regular basis. This is how we keep healthy. As long as we have a healthy system, we have healthy detoxification enzymes. If we get overcome, then we get overcome and we either get sick or we die. But if we've got the detoxification enzymes, we can break down those deto- uh, those, uh, those uh, pesticides or at least those uh, uh, materials that are bad for us. However, there's a price to pay and that is it makes us tired. Okay. So when you are exposed to any type of pesticide, it's essentially a a foreign chemical, your body, if it's healthy, will break it down. So assuming you and I are healthy, we will break it down and we will do so very quickly. But our body has to produce the enzymes in order to break it down. And that makes us tired. It's the same thing when we get sick. When we get sick, we have to produce white blood cells. And that makes us tired because we've got to produce all these white blood cells. So we're too tired to do anything. We just go to bed and we stay there for 24 hours or a little bit longer until our body has the energy to uh, uh, get itself back on track again. Uh, But this is a way to defend ourselves. So if we are constantly exposed to foreign chemicals and sicknesses and things like that, it can overcome us because it can actually make us tired. When we are tired and we don't have enough energy in order to do that, we can succumb uh, to the particular disease because our bodies are tired. We can't continue to fight things off 100% of the time, all of the time at the high level that is required for us to do so. Every once in a while, we've all been there before, we get overcome. 
And so I've been overcome before, as I mentioned briefly, even before we started out. Uh, for me, it's lack of sleep. So when I uh, am not getting enough sleep, that is usually the time when my immune system gets compromised and I am more likely to get sick. So that's been my, my big problem. Uh, in my particular life is making sure that I get enough sleep because oftentimes I do not, but there are many different ways to do that. And so if your system is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, you don't have enough energy to fight things off. You will not be able to make the necessary enzymes and therefore you are more likely to, uh, to uh, succumb to the pesticides. We take a look at farmers who've been spraying pesticides for years. They're fine for a year, five years, 10 years, Daniel, sometimes even a few decades. And then, you know, they get cancer, uh, the, the, uh, they get overcome. The body can't take it anymore. And so there's a lot more toxins. And so they actually succumb. Well, insects do the same thing. They can be overcome to the point where they can't handle it. So when a new insecticide comes out, it kills 95 to 99% of the insects. The one to 5% that survive, go ahead and uh, do the wild thing make babies, and then they're all resistant too. And now you've got resistance developing in the whole population. And pretty soon uh, the pesticide is not doing what it's supposed to be doing anymore. So insects can be overcome too. We know that they can be overcome and that's why we spray them with these pesticides because they can be overcome for a certain period of time, usually for a few years uh, before they learn how to become uh, resistant uh, to it. We spread malathion uh, quite heavily here in uh, Florida and have been doing so for a long time for mosquito control. And if you, there was a study that I read that took a look at the insects in Florida, and we have higher malathion resistance of insects in Florida. And I'm talking about wild insects in Florida, nothing that's been in a laboratory or anything like that. This is just wild insects in Florida have unnaturally high levels of resistance to malathion because they're continually being exposed to malathion. And so uh, Florida insects are just known uh, for, for doing something like that. So it's the same thing anywhere else. Uh, we're being exposed to certain contaminants. Uh, our bodies should be able to handle it. We don't want to do this all the time, but we understand that we can't avoid it. So we go outside, uh, we do this, we do that. Sometimes we swim in the ocean. It may not be healthy in the ocean at one particular time of the year. We Maybe we succumb. You know, these type of things happen, but our bodies are fighting. And as long as we don't completely overwhelm it, we're going to do okay. And the same thing with the insects. Uh, they succumb all the time. They get, they get disease all of the time. And because of that, they, they want to remain healthy. And that which is healthy to an insect is having digestible food, uh, that they can use uh, to make more uh, baby insects. That's what they do. Our, our needs are a little bit different, but at the same time, uh, identical. At the same, in the same way, they're, they're the same, but different. It's just one of those you know, paradoxes, I guess you could say. So just to clarify, did you say that the insects are able to break down the pesticides? Is that oh, yeah. what I hear? So, so they're cleaning, again, they're cleaning up a man-made mess, so to speak. Yep. Yeah, it's a chemical that is not comfortable. I mean, there are sides that they kill and they do it effectively and they have to be effective because an ineffective pesticide will not be sprayed by a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> who's going to who's going to go out and spray water on a field uh, in order to kill insects? Nobody, because they know it's not going to work. And it's the same thing. If you have a pesticide, that's not going to do anything. The farmer won't spread it. So these pesticides are good. They've been researched. Um, 
we know what they're capable of doing. Uh, we know how to, to change the chemistry to make them more toxic. Uh, and in, we also know how to make them less toxic too, but that's not our goal. And so, yes, uh, we know that we can do that and we can take care of the insects, but they will find a way in order to uh, detoxify these uh, chemicals. Uh, they've been able to show very effectively that they were able to do this. It's considered to be in some circles, uh, the number one problem in entomology today. Uh, and so because of that, uh, this process will continue ad infinitum until someone realizes that we, we just need to, to find some other way of doing this. But right now, I don't think a lot of people do. Uh, it is keeping a lot of people employed, Daniel. Yeah. And, and you also mentioned earlier um, in the, the podcast that you use the, fun, uh, the pesticide and then the fungus comes and then you got to use the fungicide. And I've been looking a little bit into mold and fungi and stuff recently. Um, and I've also found a similar thing that they're able to break down toxic chemicals. So again, um, that sort of, and I know you're not um, a botanist or uh, you don't have um, qualifications in that field with plants specifically, and you may not know. Um, but I wonder if that's also happening in that situation where, we're spraying these chemicals on the plant and then the fungus is coming along to clean up the mess. And then we're going, Oh, this damn fungus is, you know, causing such a, a problem. Um, but in reality, it's all stemming from us interrupting that beautiful cycle of nature. Mm -hmm. mm. That is exactly uh, well said. Uh, that is uh, what is going on right now. The plants can handle up to a certain point can handle up to a certain point. So if you're throwing garbage into a river, you know, it's fine. You know, you throw a little bit of garbage in the river, it'll do just fine, but it can become overwhelmed and rivers that can become polluted yeah. to the point where uh, they, they, they just can't recover anymore. It's the same thing with humans. It's the same thing with insects. It's the same thing with plants. Uh, they can only take so much. Mm. Uh, and uh, therefore they, they did choose not to be compromised, but we do compromise them uh, by many of the ways that we uh, uh, wish to, to handle things. Uh, for example, a lot of the GMO crops are inherently unhealthy. Uh, they're almost all low bricks. And part of the reason why is because they're tired. And it's the same reason that I just talked about it before. New genes are being put in there. Uh, these genes are being produced at such a high level that it's tiring to the plant. They are no longer able to fight things off. Uh, they're not photosynthesizing the way that they should. So when I test uh, the GMO plants, I see that they're low bricks. And I know that they're tired and they can't fight things off. And this is why they're being attacked uh, so readily uh, by particular insects. So you can make a GMO plan in order to take care of one particular insect. But as soon as you do, another insect will come in and start feeding upon that same GMO plant. Why? Because the plant is advertising itself as unhealthy. Mm. It may be a different type of health. It may not be attractive anymore to, let's say, a Lepidoptera. It may be more attractive now to a Hemipterous insect. But another insect will move in and uh, will start attacking uh, the plant. So we can confer this resistance, and we have done it in the past, and we are successful in doing so. But we create another problem in the process. Now, for me, taking a look at the BRICS levels, I can just tell you is that they're, they're all low. Mm -hmm. None of these crops are doing well. They're not what I would call healthy crops. And I can measure that and therefore put a number to it. I think 
I'm just absolutely fascinated by all of this. And I think you're doing such amazing and interesting work. And I know I've been asking you lots of questions around um, the insects and insecticides and bricks and all that sort of stuff. But I kind of just want to, um, for my last question, ask you about what your favorite insect is and why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... I guess it would be appropriate then uh, that my favorite insect is the praying mantis uh, that oh, it is cool. considered to be, um, you know, the, the insects, uh, these are considered to be the, the insects that can eat some of the healthiest food. They're very similar to grasshoppers in that sense. Uh, I actually raised uh, praying mantises. Uh, I was uh, raising them at, uh, at Cornell when I was an undergraduate major. I have developed uh, an interest in uh, praying mantises. I find them fascinating. Uh, I like their, uh, their visual system. I like the way they move. Uh, I like to feed them uh, insects. I like to hand feed them. So uh, they're probably my, my favorite insect. Uh, I don't have any with me right now, uh, but if any of my uh, children uh, will see a praying mantis, they'll usually bring it over. And I find myself just kind of acting like a kid again, uh, really enjoying seeing uh, the mantis uh, and its uh, displays and uh, its ability to, uh, to eat other insects, to catch them instantaneously. I've watched them uh, eat insects so many times. Uh, I'm amazed at how they eat eggs, how they toss away the wings, uh, how they uh, will you know, leave cockroaches with only four legs and watch the cockroach uh, move away on four legs. I mean, just really weird stuff. I'm just grossing everyone out right now, but just <laughs> scientifically very cool uh, to see this type of uh, 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 reaction going on. So uh, I like, I like praying mantises. I uh, would like to spend more time looking at them, but I don't. Unfortunately, I spend more time looking at, at, at other things, usually pest insects, uh, because that's where, that's where the money is and that's where uh, the interest lies and uh, that's what needs to be done. So that'll be fine too. All insects are kind of cool in their own sense. You know, I kind of got to agree with you there about the, the whole praying mantis thing. Um, yeah, I think they're a really awesome insect. Um, yeah, my, my father had a martial arts school for many, many years. And we grew up doing martial arts and it was based around some of what we incorporated into the martial arts was based around the praying mantis. That was like the that's style right. of the martial arts. So yeah, that's I right. resonate with you and yes. they're pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. That is cool. <laughs> do you think that there's any um, really important points that we may have missed that you would like to cover or do you have any um, like final words or thoughts? Uh, I can just share with you ever so briefly uh, that one of the other things that I do is insect olfaction, which has a lot to do with the bricks and how the insect smells its environment. Mm -hmm. I'm right now uh, uh, beginning a four-part series on insect olfaction. Uh, I just completed the first one uh, recently. I'm getting uh, the second, third, and fourth presentations uh, ready right now, and I will be reviewing a new theory of insect olfaction and how insects actually smell. Uh, provide the evidence uh, around it because you got to have numbers and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, move people in a different direction. Even the entomologist uh, who, um, who understand insect olfaction uh, because we, we discovered the new theory in 2016 and we've been utilizing it now uh, for the past six years with great success and determining exactly how insects uh, smell. So hmm. you didn't bring it up. It's just another aspect of the study, but it opens up a whole new can of worms, a whole new subject matter, 
And so for anyone who was interested in pursuing that, uh, just pay attention over the next few months. Those will probably also appear on YouTube in short order. And, um, and you're going to have me back on and we want to talk about how insects smell at a later yeah, date. Cool. Uh, I think that would be uh, uh, an interesting uh, discussion as well. Awesome. How do people support your work? Because I think you're doing such interesting and meaningful and very important work. And I think we need to get this information out to as many people as possible. Um, and also, you know, there's probably um, people out there who can benefit from what you're saying that may never have even come across this concept before. So um, do you have like a website? Is there a way that people may be able to come in and support you? What's the best way for them to do that? Um, I, I don't solicit funds or anything like that. Usually um, I, uh, I do uh, supplement uh, my income uh, through speaking engagements. Uh, okay. So that is one way. So if, if someone would like me to come speak uh, to their conference, uh, we can go ahead and do that. I can give one presentation or I can spend uh, two days uh, talking about any one of a number of things. So that's part of it. I am funded by, um, I have been funded by venture capitalists, uh, people who are looking for ways to uh, change uh, the way people think. And so they're looking for research to be done in a way that no one has, nothing has ever been done before. So venture capitalists have been important to that. Most recently, I've been picked up uh, as AEA's scientific advisor. AEA is advancing eco-agriculture. And as their scientific advisor, I'm now spending a lot of time working for them, helping them to uh, analyze a lot of their uh, information and, uh, and uh, presenting information because they're asking me to present as well, which I'm, I'm always uh, fond of doing. Uh, I do enjoy getting up, so-called getting out of the laboratory and uh, talking to Daniel in Australia or, or anyone else. Uh, these, are, these are nice uh, because otherwise, I mean, earlier today, I had my head uh, buried in a spreadsheet. And so I've, I've got a lot of numbers going through my minds right now. So this is definitely a great way. Uh, it's Friday right now. Many of your listeners may or may not be hearing this at, uh, on a Friday, but uh, it's, it's a nice end uh, to the week as to be able to talk with you right now. So thank you uh, for this opportunity, Daniel. No, thank you. I mean, this was just such an awesome conversation. I resonate with everything you're saying. It makes sense. It's, it's just common sense. And I think a lot of the answers that we're looking for, we can find just by observing nature and just taking time to actually really understand what's going on rather than just jumping to a, you know, our first conclusion of, of seeing, you know, the, the, the problem and then trying to deal with that problem. But in turn, as we've discussed, create a massive range of flow and effects. Uh, and I think everything that you've spoken about is very, even though you said it's, you know, you're not into human health, I think it's really relevant to human health because we're all part of nature. We're not separate to it. So if we can understand what is going on with plants and insects and other animals, we can relate that now back to us as, as humans. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come and speak with me. Um, and I would, yeah, really love to have you back uh, at some point, once you're ready to talk about insect olfaction and yeah, I, I I'm, uh, have, a, have a keen interest in these things, uh, particularly around permaculture and regenerative, regenerative agriculture. So this information hasn't only been really helpful for me from understanding the terrain a little bit better, so to speak, but also um, it's really good information to have from 
um, that permaculture and regenerative agriculture perspective too. Well said, well put. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Dykstra. I once again, really appreciate your time and hopefully I get to talk to you again soon. I would enjoy that a lot, Daniel. All right. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Have a good weekend. And to all the listeners, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.